In this podcast, we're going to talk about the concept of sexuality, and we'll highlight some examples to help us understand this concept. So first, I want to talk about uh, assessment. So this is an invasive topic. It's very personal. So we want to think about that and respect that when we are assessing patients related to this concept. So with assessment, we always want to um, help build trust. So it would be best to go in and approach a patient if I know I'm going to be discussing something that's related to sexuality, whether it be something related to gender or sexual behavior or erectile dysfunction or menopause. And thinking about how can I build trust with the patient? Let's just get to know them a little bit. Let's kind of do something to break the ice. Let's not just go full force and start asking these personal questions. So just kind of in general, getting to know the patient would be a great way to start our to start our assessment. It's really our responsibility to put the patient at ease. We want to make sure we're utilizing receptive body language, watching your nonverbals, asking open-ended questions to help collect information, just like we would normally when we talk about using therapeutic communication. We also have to consider if we're working with an adolescent patient. And with adolescent patients, if the parents are present, we are supposed to excuse the parents before the assessment um, or at least ask permission. Um, you know, you you choose to excuse the, the parent and the adolescent may say that they want their parent to stay. You know, everyone has different relationship with their parents. But we go in with the expectation that this is a private matter and the parents are going to be excused unless the adolescent chooses otherwise. Because we are going to be talking about sensitive things, we want the adolescent um, and whoever else we're assessing, we want them to be open about questions about abuse, Um, especially thinking about the adolescent, asking them about if they've ever been physically or emotionally abused, if they've ever been forced to have sex against their will, or if there's any um, history of childhood sexual abuse. So definitely some personal information that we're going to be considering. So other things that we want to think about with our assessment would be some terms that are going to help us in certain parts of our assessment, depending on the situation um, that we're working with with our patient. So some of the key terms that I want you to know related to sexuality actually kind of branch off and are more focused on gender. Let's talk about those for a little bit. So the first one I want you to understand is sexual identity. And this is, um, these, this reflects back on the body parts. This is how one is born. This is also called natal sex. So we, we say that, you know, girls are girls because they're born with a vagina, for example. Then we also have what would be called gender identity. And gender identity is not based on the body parts per se. It's more the mind and the brain. So this is how someone, how someone feels, how they identify, what gender do they identify with? So for example, I could have a female, um, who is a female based on her body parts and how she was born, but that female identifies with the male gender. A lot of our our gender is influenced by society and culture. So we have to take that into consideration as well. 
when we, um, another term that we want to think about is sexual orientation. So sexual orientation is what gender is this person attracted to sexually? And then that kind of plays into something that we might be assessing, which are sexual behaviors. And we'll talk about sexual behaviors that are risky and that might put the patient at risk for different diseases like sexually transmitted infections, which could lead to other complications, like, for example, infertility um, or even the possibility of contracting HIV. So sexual behaviors will be something that we, we assess, you know, how that person responds to their sexual impulses or desires. And then another definition that we could be familiar with um, would be genderqueer. And this is when a person does not subscribe to a conventional gender distinction. They may identify with neither gender or, or a little bit of both, you know, some type of combination. And we also call this non-binary. Okay, so this would be some things that we would think about um, that might be a part of our assessment. You know, assessments are evolving now. Um, different hospitals, healthcare facilities are allowing to have those, those options, those questions to be able to fully assess um, a patient. And part of that is we want to make sure that we're identifying them the way that they want to be identified. Um, but you also think, have to think about if someone wants to identify as male or female, but they were born the opposite sex, we kind of have to know that too, because that could influence their, um, their care and, you know, as far as what kind of things are they at risk for, what kind of diagnostic tests do they need to keep up with routinely um, because they were born this way, but they identify yet in the opposite gender. And you should just be up front, up front with patients and ask, um, you know, how, how you should address them. Um, in if you make a mistake and you address a patient incorrectly, it's best not to just keep apologizing and apologizing because then you're just bringing it up and bringing it up. And patients already have a hard enough time, um, especially if they're in that process of trying to transition. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So other things that we want to think about, let's kind of start breaking down into, um, actually, before we get to some exemplars, let's think about a little bit across the lifespan. So we've talked about some assessment pieces, some terms. Now I want to back up and let's think about the connection with sexuality and infancy and childhood. So infancy and childhood, um, you know, we're born the sex that we're born. And then a lot of um, how we display our, our gender or our sexuality is based on those that are around us because we don't really know any better at that point because we're so young. Um, you also think about, you know, we've talked about a, the concept of reproduction, um, and there's this connection with reproduction and sexuality. And thinking about infants, when infants are born, females can have um, what's called pseudomenses, where they're having these hormonal fluctuations, you know, from being um, in, you know, trying to um, get used to extra uterine life. So these hormonal fluctuations, they might have a little bit of bleeding when we call that pseudomenses. There's going to be enlargement, um, not enlargement, but swelling um, of, the, of the testicle, swelling of the labia. When babies are born again, they're just trying to adjust. Uh, their, their hormones get kind of where, to where they need to be. 
with males, we're also assessing the placement of the urethral opening because there can be conditions where it's not in the right spot. We're looking at um, circumcis circumcisions, if they've had that, and how to care for and assess for that. As we start to transition into adolescence, now, you know, they've really become more comfortable with um, with sexual identity and behavior to some extent to where we might see them actually acting on it and engaging in sex. So think, thinking about the risks, the education, the health promotion that we can do for adolescents to help keep them uh, from getting things like STIs or even being involved in abusive relationships or putting themselves in risky situations. If we think about our promotion with this topic, that primary prevention, what we really want to teach about is the safe sex, you know, the use of condoms, different types of contraception, you know, that's available and what would work best for them. Um, you know, the risk of having multiple partners. Um, we also really could promote in this adolescent period, kind of in ch children to adolescent, is the HPV vaccine. There's two different types available. I know one of them is Gardasil. I can't think of the other one off the top of my head. But typically, this HPV vaccine we're promoting um, to be done as early as age 9, but typically around 11. And we're trying to hit these patients before they become sexually active. Now, it does involve typically involve more than one shot, so sometimes what we find out is somebody didn't complete it all and they're, you know, way past their adolescence. Well, we can still um, recommend that this vaccine be given all the way up to about age 26. And what we're trying to prevent here is we're um, trying to prevent the human papillomavirus from invading and causing complications like things like cancer. And then as far as secondary prevention with this topic, a lot of that is your um, the screenings that can be done. So going in for um, pap smears, um, getting the prostate exams, so those sort of things to help catch things early um, before they progress into further complications. And then when we think about like females and how they're affected by sexuality, some of the things that you're going to see us focus on are um, we're not going to talk a whole lot about menses. Um, we'll talk about that in relation to puberty. Um, but beyond that, you know, that, uh, females will be dealing with that. Um, but also going into perimenopause and menopause. So I want you to think about what would be the signs and symptoms that we see, uh, with perimenopause and menopause. And in perimenopause, I can think right off the top of my head, what m a lot of women complain about is that the hot flashes, so a lot of what we're going to be doing as the nurse is assessing those signs and symptoms and helping them address those. How can we get them more comfortable? Uh, so think about that. And then know that menopause is truly, menopause does not truly occur until they have not had a period for an entire year. So in perimenopause, it'll kind of be on and off. They'll have irregularities in their menstrual cycle. But once that period's gone for an entire year, then we actually say that, okay, this patient now has menopause. And during that time, some treatment options that we'll see, and you can see this in the, the medications that we want you to know, are hormonal replacement. So we could be giving them low-dose estrogen. Um, an example of that is Premarin. So we could help them with that, help alleviate some of those signs and symptoms by giving them that medication.
You can also see that medication used, the estrogen replacement, if we have a patient that is a male who wants to transition to a female, uh, we would see the hormones used for them as well. Another medication that I can mention for a patient who is a male and wants to transition to a female, they might also be on what's called an androgen blocker, so blocking some of those male hormones. Um, and one of the common ones that we'll discuss is spironolactone, which is a drug that you have learned about in the past in relation to um, diuretics. So it's actually a diuretic, but it um, blocks androgen as well. When we think about male, um, and males and sexuality, our focus is going to be, our example will be on erectile dysfunction, thinking about what, what are the causes of that, also looking at medications or treatment options for that. And um, one of the meds that I can tell you that we'll talk about for male erectile dysfunction is phosphodiesterase inhibitors. So things like Cialis, Levitra, there's another one, and it's not coming to me, but there's a third one. So all of them essentially work the same, but the, the, some act faster than others. And one of the main things I definitely want you to know about phosphodiesterase inhibitors is the fact that they vasodilate, so that helps promote blood flow, which will help with the erection. But these patients may also be on other meds that vasodilate, so we have to be very cautious they absolutely cannot combine nitro with a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. So if somebody's on nitroglycerin to help bring down blood pressure, and then they also take a phosphodiesterase inhibitor like Cialis, they could become very hypotensive to the point to where they, they pass out. So that could be very risky. All right, and then the older adult, um, just don't forget that they might still have sex too. So we can't assume just because they're old that they're not going to have sex. Um, they're probably going to have a lot of questions for us about a decrease in libido. They're weaker now. Um, there's changes in hormone levels. Um, but we still want to promote education on safe sex in the older adult as well. I've seen a lot of stories on that in... Um, I don't know if I could say a lot of stories, but I've seen stories on that in relation to patient education in the community and in um, like nursing homes and geriatric facilities, like educating on STIs, believe it or not. Um, and then finally, I think just to kind of touch on STIs a little bit, since that's another exemplar that we're going to have, and this could be overwhelming as well. So I want you to know that we're going to focus on certain STIs. We're going to focus on gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, genital herpes, and genital warts. And in the medical surgical book, uh, there's like a little paragraph on each of those. So we're not going to get a whole lot of detail. We're going to talk about, is it a virus or a bacteria that's causing this? Um, what would be some of the signs and symptoms I would see, which a lot of them, we see the same signs and symptoms. And, and to be honest, a lot of them don't have signs and symptoms at all to begin with. Um, so which is why that regular screening is so important. And then also, is there any complications that could happen because of these? And then when you think about meds, there's all kinds of different antibiotics, or we could also give antivirals for these. But really, it's not that I want you to memorize, like, oh, this antibiotic has these specific things about it. This antibiotic has these specific things about it. Looking at it from the perspective of, how do I treat something that's caused by bacteria? Well, I give an antibiotic. 
how do I treat something that's caused by a virus? Well, I can give an antiviral for that in relation to these STIs. And then with antibiotics, we'll focus a little bit more on those than the antivirals. Going back and thinking about like kind of big picture things that we want to focus on with antibiotics. So antibiotics, a lot of times we instruct them not to take them with food. Um, sometimes they might be able to take it with food, but typically they're better absorbed when they're not. But if somebody's having a lot of like nausea, vomiting, GI issues, and the doctor might suggest to take them with food. But it's really important to like have them drink enough fluids when they're on antibiotics because antibiotics affect the kidneys. And the fluids can help kind of flush out that excess uh, medication, make sure their kidneys are functioning well. And of course, if they're on an antibiotic to treat a bacterial infection, I'm going to be assessing and looking at that white blood cell count in their labs to make sure that's trending down, making sure there's no fever or the fever's trending down. Um, so just thinking about like big picture things, big takeaways that you can take from that um, specific drug class. So I think this is a really good start to kind of help gear you um, into the right direction, giving you some ideas on things that you want to make sure that you're paying attention to and studying a little bit further for each of the exemplars um, for this concept.